when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, with the election winding down, Donald Trump is running out of creative ways to spend Republican money on himself. But the wily old grifters still got it. And now people who thought they were donating to a presidential campaign have actually bought copies of The Art of the Deal. We'll take a look at Trump's ability to rook gullible Republican donors right to the end. Meanwhile, the media has been having a debate about Trump's voter base. On one side, you have people who believe it's entirely driven by racial resentment. On the other, you have those who insist it's all rooted in economic anxiety. But what if the real problem is that we've all just taken sides in a dumb debate? Joining us to travel to a middle ground is University of Connecticut history professor James Kwok. Additionally... The 2016 election has been a real boon for the fact-checking industry. Interest in fact-checking among readers is seemingly at an all-time high. And thanks to Donald Trump, there is a never-ending supply of material. And yet, it doesn't seem that it's making that much of a difference. Joining us to talk about how fact-checking is still losing the battle of confirmation bias is New York Times columnist Emma Roller. Finally, you have a choice in this election. And as it turns out, it's not limited to the imperfect human beings running for president. If you're out there on Twitter, you may know that one of the candidates running in this election, who's thrown their hat into the ring early and is carrying it on right to the end, is a self-described sweet meteor of death. On this week's show, we talk to the sweet meteor live from deep space about its bold plan to annihilate the planet and extinguish all life on Earth. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, S.V. Date, and Arthur Delaney. And here's what happened first. Hi, welcome back to another edition of So That Happened. Here we are stuck in the belly of this terrible machine while the machine bleeds to death. It's a 2016 election. Uh, We're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about other things today, but we're going to jump off right now with the latest and greatest about Donald Trump. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Read the Press. Joining me right off the bat, we have Arthur Delaney. Hi. Our good friend. And reporter extraordinaire, S.V. Date. Hey there. So I just want to start by saying that for a guy who has come to hate the media so much, Donald Trump, there's <laughs> there's never been a presidential figure that I can remember who has inspired such a need to go out and report on him. Uh, just the, the extent to which he is so opaque about his practices and, 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 and so cloistered about his financial dealings, he, he almost, not since Gary Hart said, follow me around, have we had a figure that just inspires so much shoe leather. And Sharish, you have um, been particularly focused on one aspect of his campaign, something that speaks to his grifty nature, the way <laughs> the way that, that Donald Trump is has has sort of taken his presidential campaign and turned it into a sort of 
machine of self-dealing. Can you explain right. just broadly the kind of things that you've you've discovered following Donald Trump? Well, some were pretty obvious. I mean, even from the start, he would use his own hotels whenever he could for events, whether he had a victory party or a press conference or, you know, whatever. And he would invite people in. He would have a platform set up, a podium, microphones, etc. And people would be asked to... Um, take their seats, and there'd be sometimes waiters walking around with food and drink and so forth. And he'd also bring in his fans. You know, his if it was uh, one of his golf clubs, he'd bring in his members. And they would sit actually in the very front of the event, yeah. and reporters would sit in the back. And I got curious, well, how much exactly is he paying for all this stuff? And back in the primaries, he was paying for most of his campaign. Uh, let's take that back. He was paying for a lot of his campaign, and then when people started buying hats... They started paying for his campaign. Okay, right? fair play. Come March or so, it became clear he was going to be the nominee. And when that happened, the stuff that he was paying for uh, that were his own properties, that became an expense for his donors. And by donors, I mean basically everybody who's contributed regularly to the Republican Party over the years is now paying for or is now you know, also donating to Donald Trump. So I got, you know, I was sort of wondering, well, how is this going to work now? Is he going to start being more like a normal candidate and going to the Marriott ballroom instead? No, he didn't. <laughs> in fact, what was beautiful was in the very first campaign filing that we saw after he officially got the nomination, officially set up these fundraising uh, committees with the with the Republican National Committee, he uh, he paid off. $450,000 in expenses at Mar-a-Lago, which he'd incurred two months earlier, back when he was still running against the RNC. In <laughs> fact, the opening prayer in that victory party that night was, you know, let the Lord help but Donald Trump defeat the establishment party. So you're right. The establishment <laughs> then is paying for that party. And there were a total of two parties, one press conference, total bill, $450,000. The Lord works in mysterious ways. He sure does. (laughs) And uh, evidently he wanted everyone going to his party, who, who, by the way, were mainly members of the Mar-a-Lago Club, right? So it wasn't like this was open to his volunteers. Right. Not that there were many in Florida or or anywhere else for that matter, but they weren't open for the staff or volunteers. They were open to dues-paying members of Mar-a-Lago. So in, in essence, he was providing them a perk. But it was on the, it was RNC's, on the dive. RNC's dive. Yeah, which is a. <laughs> I have a question about this. Yes, sir. So, so since he, it was clear he would become the the nominee, Donald Trump has been using donor funds to pay for his own stuff. In essence, right. he's paying himself with RNC and donor funds. Isn't that illegal? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you brought that up because there is, in fact, a law uh, in the Federal Election uh, Code that says that you cannot use, you cannot convert campaign uh, or campaign committee money for personal use, right? So now their argument is, well, we have to pay fair market value, and that is true. Mm. Uh, And candidates do it all the time. When they're running for office, if if they have an insurance business, they set aside some portion of, of their office space and use it as their congressional campaign. And they, if they do it legally and properly, they figure out what the market rent is in that area, and they allocate it out, and everything's good. Saves them the trouble of having to find someplace else. What Trump has done is he prices his own properties above what other people in the area are charging for things. Yeah. Now, for example, for that Mar-a-Lago instance, I, I looked it up. You could have rented a Marriott ballroom 
for that victory party for the two or three hours and spent a total, total of $20,000. And that was with hors d'oeuvres, open bar, et cetera. Basically the same thing as what he did at Mar-a-Lago. So that's like 10% of what he paid. Correct. Well, like, right. I mean, almost yeah. 5% of what he paid. Was well, four, you know, there were, well, it was about 10% because okay. uh, there were three events in that four and Oh, okay. Fair right? enough. Fair <clears> enough. Fair so, so there's a little unclarity here because uh, there's no guidance because this has never happened before that someone would choose to spend an extraordinary amount of money. And that was, uh, you know, for stuff that he could have paid less money for. And that was never envisioned when they wrote the regs for this, because why would a candidate blow through money like this? Right. And now you you also found out something unusual that was happening at Trump Tower, where during the where he has been maintaining campaign offices. Like you said, like you said, there's no point in opening up another building when right. you can just do it in a Trump Tower. Right. But if I recall correctly, there was a period of time at which uh, he was sort of billing a certain rent Correct. for campaign offices there, and then all of a sudden right. it jumped astronomically. Right. right. The period of time coincided with the period that he was paying for his own campaign. Right, self-funding. Right? So exactly. Yeah. So, and, and in that period, which went from like January of 2015 Clear on up through the spring of 2016, the rent was about $35,000 per month in Trump Tower. Yeah. And the the space itself was no great shakes. I mean, this was like uh, the back rooms for the set for The Apprentice, right? The sure. The yeah. ceilings weren't even done. There were no real permanent walls. So people were uh, in plywood. Make, <laughs> they were in like makeshift little cubicles, and it, it looked terrible. You can see a video of this. This is out there. Um but then, when it became clear who's going to be the nominee, they decided, well, we need better digs. And they moved upstairs into plush boardrooms, nice offices, nice views, because there weren't any in, right. in the way where they were previously. And the rent went up five times, right? So it went from about $35,000 per month to $170,000 I month. love that. Wow. Yeah. So when he's playing with house money, he keeps things real cheap. Correct. But when he has it, when he when he's able it's to tap into another other source, people's money, yeah, right. yeah. So, he, yeah. so to clarify, he is allowed to use his own places, correct, uh, for campaign purposes if he pays fair market value for right. it, which he doesn't seem to be doing. Well, now, fair. I mean, that's a. I guess it can be a term of art. Now, if you're Donald Trump, you say my stuff is so much better than what's going on outside in, in Midtown Manhattan that I can I can justify people having to pay ninety to one hundred and twenty dollars per square foot. To put this in perspective, the Clinton campaign has way more office space, but way more employees, may more, you know, way more volunteers, and they're paying thirty-two dollars per square foot. So, mm. right? So yeah. here you are. Uh, Trump is unnecessarily paying for a lot more. So this is this escalated uh, when he became the nominee. Now it looks like he's going to go down in flames. Potentially the biggest loser in presidential history. <laughs> Like he's flirting with that thirty-seven no, percent no. vote total that would uh, be historically awful. I think once the map is written, you're going to still see Walter Mondale uh, this, maybe this... a bigger loser, but okay. Okay, yeah, and the map will be all red, and it'll, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> this week, he it seems like this sort of gr- graft has escalated as well. Didn't you go to an event right, on well, this Wednesday? Morning. Absolutely. This. Uh, we had this week the opening of the Trump International Hotel, the grand opening, because as you know, the 
hotel has actually been open for the last couple of months, right? Uh, this was the grand opening with the giant scissors and the ribbon and everything else. <laughs> Happening at the same time his running mates trying to desperately save Utah. Utah, right. Utah, right. So, which is now a battleground state. But right. we're here in Washington, D.C. with its three solidly Democratic delegates. And Trump has zero chance of getting any of those. Uh, or right, so we have this thing, and it, it, it's very nice. You know, they had the, the the ballroom, the presidential ballroom, all set up with the red, white, and blue lights on top, and the the podium, and the and the hundreds of chairs lined up for his supporters to come and sit in front. Those and wedding chairs, <laughs> they were wedding chairs. And then this thing started in the morning. He wasted all of the morning, half the afternoon. On a hotel opening, when he should, in theory, he should be out campaigning. Now, here's what I'm looking for. In lay, in the first week of December, there will be a Federal Election Commission filing due yeah. for this period. I'm dying to see how much his donors and the RNC have paid so he could go do his ribbon cutting in his brand new hotel. Really quick, do you catch any whiff of, like, RNC members or their donors griping about this? Like, getting up in a, uh, I mean, this is like... They're, this is their money being pissed away. Right. They notice it? Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they, they, they notice it. And they're not thrilled. And uh, yet he's their nominee, and they can't do anything about it now other than hit themselves over the head, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I, I think we might see some questions being asked afterward about this. Yeah. I don't know what they can do because, you know, there's so much imprecision in the language right now, in, in the in the in both in the law and in the regs that I... But the hotel was really nice. It is a very nice hotel. Right. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say I, I saw the cocktail menu today, and it is excrement. <laughs> the cocktail menu is excrement. It is like maybe the worst cocktail menu I've seen in the District of Columbia. 24 bucks for two fingers of bourbon with some honey and some orange bitters. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that in the, oh, in, in, in the Trump Hotel, basically. <laughs> Anyway, um, just uh, one last data point I'll leave you with. At the same, the same week that Trump is doing a ribbon cutting as in his own hotel, his campaign has pulled back larger fundraising effort that would enable and aid the Republicans' larger down-ticket effort. It's a matter of some controversy, and it suggests that this civil war that he's threatening to fight with Paul Ryan and the establishment Republicans has taken a new turn. Well, maybe to make up for it, he can just send all those RNC members a copy of Art of the Deal, which they've already <laughs> paid for, by the way, with more donor money. Of course so, oh they have. God. Of course they have. That's right. He's also donors, RNC. You've, you've bought a bunch of books. I don't know if you know about it yet, but... <laughs> 17,000 of them, probably. 17,000 oh, yeah, copies God. of the Art of the Deal purchased by the RNC for purposes we know not what. Wow. All right. Sharice, thanks for joining us today. It's we're my glad pleasure. to have you. Arthur, of course, we're glad to have you, too, sticking up for the time and dates of things. And uh, we have Thank a, you. We have a really great show with some more fun, fun guests. So please stick around. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hi, and we are back, and we are very happy to have a special guest with us in the studio. Uh, Well, Arthur Delaney is here. Always, you know, always a special guest. You're ru- you're routinely special. Thank you. You're special on the regular. Uh, our special guest, um, uh, who's special to this podcast, uh, it comes from she it comes from the New York Times. She's a columnist, and in our she's a Wisconsinite. And as everyone knows, we are we are slowly collecting Wisconsinites on this podcast like Pokemon. Please, please, <laughs> everyone, welcome. To, this is Emma Roller. Happy to be another Pokemon in the Pokedex. That's right. That's right. We really go after Wisconsinites pretty hard on this podcast. <laughs> Wisconsin's just, great. It is pretty great. Got cheese, got snow. It's the Buffalo of states. It's the Buffalo of states, exactly. I like to think of Buffalo as the city of Wisconsin's. That's pretty good, too. <laughs> That's pretty good, too. Anyway, anyway, we're here to talk about the facts, man. The um, facts. Yeah. Uh, Emma, you, you uh, wrote in the Times this week. Um, it, it seemed to be like half critical and half lamentation about uh, how uh, this particular election cycle has driven up the interest uh, in fact checking to a fair the well. But at the same time, it's exposed a lot of the flaws uh, in the whole premise behind fact checking. Right. So uh, I wrote a story this week in The Times about fact checking and how this idea of of truthiness has evolved since 2005 when Stephen Colbert coined that term to sort of mean, you know, what you feel in your gut. That's the real truth, and that's the only truth that matters. Uh, And obviously at that time, he was talking about people like Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, all of whom still have a lot of influence within the Republican Party. But now with this election, we've seen social media sort of weaponized truthiness, especially with uh, these hyper-partisan Facebook pages you see on the right and the left that I don't know if you guys see this in your feeds, but a lot of my friends will sort of share these memes from pages like the other 98% and stuff like that. And they have, some of these pages have the blue check mark. They are verified from Facebook but they lends have, them that imprimatur of excellence. Exactly. Nice work, yeah. Facebook. <laughs> right. So they have this air of credibility and they get shared a ton. Um, but they don't, unlike news outlets, they don't have any responsibility to say true, true things. things. Yeah. It's an error of credibility. <laughs> hey um, <laughs> But yeah, so, uh, and obviously with Donald Trump's candidacy, there's intense, uh, should I say, resentment or is hatred too strong a word of the media? Yes, hatred Uh, is a perfect word. Yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, watch any footage from Trump rallies and they're not fans of people in having been someone in the press pen at a Trump rally. They're not fans of us. Um, But also just exploring this idea of 
you know, this is not happening in a vacuum. Obviously, there's been a concerted effort on the right for 20 years to tell their base, you should not believe what mainstream media outlets tell you. And now it's gotten to the point where it's kind of backfired on them because they cannot convince some of their base uh, of certain facts about specifically about Donald Trump. And that's put people like Charlie Sykes, who is a conservative talk radio host in Milwaukee, right. in a particular bind because he is very vocally anti-Trump and he has, uh, you know, gotten in a lot of uh, fights with his listenership over that. Yeah. Um, Another quality Wisconsinite. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Got to catch them all. And I've been following him this year, and he seems actually sort of repentant about the extent to which the right-wing talk radio industry has undermined the traditional journalistic gatekeepers. Right. And he had a really fascinating interview with Business Insider back in August where he said, look, there are no gatekeepers anymore. And if if I go on my radio show and I try to, you know— convince my my listeners of some negative information about Donald Trump, they'll say, oh, where did you hear that? And he says, well, the New York Times did a fact check on it. And his listeners will say, well, that's the New York Times. They lie about everything. Right. And like I saw this, you know, thing on Facebook from Alan West or I saw this other thing on Facebook or this Twitter meme. And, and that's what I'm choosing to believe. Mm. And Donald Trump himself is the king of this, of course, of like balkanized media and right. being a bad source of information. Just it's, today, I'm sorry, I said oh, today. Oh, come on. Uh, following following an, an, uh, on, uh, on Emma's lead in Bloomberg, Sasha Eisenberg and Josh Green have a report out that describes the extent to which the Trump campaign's last play in this election is going to be to put uh, dark Facebook posts right. uh, up everywhere and target them at specific factions of the liberal votes. They have, they, they literally will call them voter suppression efforts. Um, their aim is to use Facebook posts to convince young women, to convince uh, Bernie Sanders acolytes and to convince African-Americans not to come to the polls. They'll just remind them of uh, Hillary Clinton's super predators remark mm-hmm. or the WikiLeaks emails that, that proved to be, you know, so wedge inducing between her and the Sanders camp. But do you, I know that they themselves referred to that as voter su- suppression. That's not what it but is. But I don't think that's really voter suppression. It's voter depression or dissuasion. Right. Discouragement. Yeah. It's, it's not like intimidating <clears throat> someone at the polls right. or the something goal, like that. The goal is yeah. to bring down her her floor to, right. to match his ceiling. Which, of course, the, the, the side thing that's interesting about this is that the Trump campaign, despite having a candidate who says it's terrible to let anyone in Mosul know you're about to bomb it, keeps telegraphing their punches. Like, <laughs> they don't drop a surprise on anybody. Yeah. They, they say for, they, they give uh, Hillary Clinton a week to prepare for all the, like, like, Clinton accusers that are coming forward. They give everyone two weeks out to say, hey, here's what we're going to do to try to win the election. It's like, wouldn't it be more effective if you just kept that, like, Facebook thing you have going under wraps? Uh, well, Christina Wilkie had a really good story here um, about a recent effort. Was it the Trump campaign or Roger no, Stone? No, it was Stone, or... who, right. who is... Uh, Really adamant that it was not the Trump campaign, okay, which nobody he, nobody knows what is his relationship. But he's to like Trump. a senior advisor to the Trump campaign. And, but he's also they, been 
he's throughout, it's hard to tell in the past in the past 15 years Roger Stone has fallen in and out of favor with Donald Trump uh, hmm. seemingly as the tides shift it's very very strange yeah so he what, he was launching a uh, tr- a voter like tracking harassment right thing. there was this website that was um I forget what it's steal called. the steal vo- uh, stop the stop the steel dot org right where people could sort of print out these official looking um, ID badges that made them look like official um, poll observers, yeah. um, even when they were just like Donald Trump supporters out to, you know, sort of watch polling places. I have a a question. So there has been this history of radio hosts saying, you know, don't believe anything that the media says. So to what extent is the current problem just that? And to what extent is it these crappy websites that say untrue things just uh, gaming the Facebook algorithm for clicks. Like, that's profitable for them to do now. Right. Well, I think in a lot of ways, radio hosts like Beck, like Sean Hannity, um, like Rush Limbaugh, who recently said on his radio show, This American Life actually had a really great um, segment about this last week. Um, But Rush Limbaugh on a recent radio show said, you know, you can't trust fact-checking because all fact-checking is is opinion journalism. Dressed up in another form. Yeah, dressed up yeah. um, by it, partisan outlets. What's interesting is there is a little bit of a distance between this fact-checkers and then traditional reporters. Like, the weird arrangement we have with fact-checkers now is that we've, we've sort of bit, built fact-checkers a temple. And then mm-hmm. when we need a fact to get checked, we turn to them to do it. And it's like we've forgotten that we could do that ourselves. We right. actually don't. It's, it's probably more a prevalent problem on cable news where where you see on CNN people citing PolitiFact. Uh, and you're wondering, well, don't you have a stable of reporters right mm-hmm. there that could have gone? You could just be like CNN has confirmed, blah, blah, blah. You don't mm-hmm. have to like always turn them out. So it does tend to lend credence to the idea that these guys were set up in sort of a, an area of their own to sort of speak, you know, their opinions down on the masses. Right. And and another way I think you see that expressed is that there's a lot of um, distrust on the right to PolitiFact. You know, Republicans really don't like the website PolitiFact because they think they sort of cherry pick facts and uh, treat Republicans more harshly than Democrats. Um But I think with this presidential election, it is objectively true that Donald Trump lies at a higher rate in what he says in public than Hillary Clinton is. He's putting the fact checkers in an awkward position. (laughs) Yeah, it would be cool if he (laughs) just dialed it down a little bit. Right. Then we could just all go back to both sides ism and call it a day. One of the things (laughs) one of the things I just wanted to end with is um, is 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 a great irony you talk about in the piece in that and that despite all this all of this controversy interest in fact checking is at an all-time high with the public mm-hmm. they go and they tune in and they get read fact checks but then they just are just sort of like very very capable of like dismissing the ones that don't already jibe with their opinion right well um the crux of my piece is is that there isn't the strongest bias in american politics isn't conservative bias or a liberal bias but confirmation bias. Oh, I'm so I thought it was that all along. <laughs> yeah. Right. Confirmation yes. bias. Oh, my gosh. Confirmation bias is the idea that um, you only tend to believe and remember uh, facts that support what you already believe. So that is probably the most 
insidious and, and hard to change aspect of political discourse. And human nature. And yeah. human nature. Well, um, uh, it's a fascinating piece. People should go read it. Uh, give me the headline because I can't recall it offhand. Uh, it's called Your Facts or Mine? Question mark. Your Facts or Mine? Question mark. Don't leave out the question mark <laughs> um, at the New York Times. And please, uh, you should read Emma's stuff all the time. At the New York Times, she's pretty fantastic. Good um, on Twitter, too. And yes, even Thank though you. Twitter I, is a garbage fire. I, I feel like being good on Twitter is like being a good axe murderer or something, though. No? <laughs> True. <laughs> Fact check. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I think you'd make a pretty fine axe murderer if you really put your mind to it. Thank but you. I think, I think everyone's... This isn't being recorded, right? No, of course not. This, okay, this, these microphones mean nothing, and they never have meant anything. Um, Emma, thanks for coming on the show today. We look for, forward to having you again. Arthur, we're going to have you again because you work here. Thank God. <laughs> and, and for some reason, so do I. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as usual by... Jason Lincolns. Um, and on the phone, we have a, a professor at the University of Connecticut School of Law, uh, author of two outstanding books, White House Burning and 13 Bankers, James Kwok. Hi. I'm glad to be here. So, James, you've been writing quite a bit about American politics because it's a thing that you do. And uh, I was struck by uh, there's this sort of ongoing conversation among people uh, to, to the left of the center in in sort of not quite media elite land, but but people who are maybe sub media elites about what's going on with the Donald Trump phenomenon, about what what caused it, whether this was something that is motivated through by economic forces or by racial animosity. Um, and there's there's become this sort of I find very strange, but this this wing of, of commentary that says there's no economic component to his support whatsoever. And and you've pushed back against that idea. Can you explain what, what, what your, your your case is? Sure, that's true. I mean, I think that, as you describe it, I would say the divide is between some people who think that uh, there are different re- multiple reasons for Donald Trump's pro- popularity. One of them is that he's a racist, and some people are racist. And one of them is that he has some kind of a message that people uh, with poor economic in poor economic conditions uh, that appeals to them uh, for some reason, which we can talk about later. So I think some people think it's racism and economic factors. And then, as you say, there are some people who say it's all racism, and essentially there is no economic uh, there are no economic factors behind the rise of Donald Trump. So the debate is about whether economic factors can help partially explain the rise of Trump, and this is, you know, as you know, this is referred to as the ex- economic anxiety issue. Yes, it's, they're, they're, people make jokes about this all the time when they see a rich person saying something racist on Twitter. They say, ha-ha, look at all of his economic anxiety, the joke being that he's rich and racist. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and this, is, this has become its own genre of tweets on, on uh, Twitter, but it's, you know, it's occasionally people that try to back it up with some kind of analysis, and so some of the analysis is rather shallow, and some of it is somewhat deeper. And 
So Dylan Matthews and Vox recently wrote one of the more comprehensive, uh, you know, richly sourced arguments, trying to say economic factors don't explain the rise of Trump. And my, the main point I want to make, so, I mean, to put my cards on the table, my suspicion, my belief is that economic factors are one of the reasons Trump is popular. But the point I've tried to make in my writing since that, I mean, we've reached a point where one side is just not going to convince the other. The main point I wanted to make is that uh, given the kinds of data we have and the kinds of arguments that people like Dylan Matthews are trying to make, you just can't, you can't show, you cannot exclude economic factors. So the original title of, of one of my blog posts, which you can still see in the URL, because WordPress um, makes Saves the URL. it forever, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, you can't get there from here. <laughs> and that's the, uh, that's the point I wanted to make. Um, so, for example, one genre of argument that people make uh, trying to debunk the economic anxiety thesis is they will look at uh, polling data. And they'll say, look, if Trump's support is about economic anxiety, then he should be doing better with poor people than with rich people. Or, as Matt Iglesias said in one article, he should be doing better with minorities and the young, because minorities and the young have had a tougher economic time in the past few years than white people and the rich. And obviously, if you look at the polling data, um, Donald Trump does not do very well among minorities right. and the young. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, you know, kind of you say QED. So the, the argument that... that um, you know, support for Trump, if you believe in economic anxiety, support for Trump should be higher among uh, the young or minorities or poor people is is almost self-refuting. I mean, so because we know, uh, obviously, African-Americans are the most clear example. We right. know why his support among African-Americans is low. It's because he's a racist, right? That is, that is actually the point of people like Iglesias who are making these arguments. So essentially, the, the argument is presuming, these kinds of arguments presume that that all people are single-issue voters, and right. there's only one, all, equal, all people are single-issue voters on the same issue. If that were the case, then the kind of evidence that, then the evidence that African-Americans don't support Trump would be evidence against the economic anxiety hypothesis. But once you allow for the fact that within any demographic group, people can vote for different reasons, these kinds of um, inferences just don't, don't hold up. I hold up in a monocausal world. I've I found it interesting that one of the arguments against it, I've I've seen this presented, I don't know, five or six times. Um, people will I'm really working with polling data and also with economic data say, well, you know, here are the really poor people in America, and they seem cool to Trump. The people who are seem to be warmer are the people one or two economic steps on the ladder above. So it's not economic anxiety. And I always think about that and think, well, okay, one or two steps above abject poverty is still kind of economically tense for people. <laughs> and you can interrogate it further by asking, how old are these people? How long have they been in their jobs? How many kids do they have? What are they, do they feel stuck in life? Do they feel like they should have gotten further in life than they are right now? How were their parents? Were they... Were they 
at an even better economic standing. I, I It just seems to be weird that it, we write off people that have just sort of like clawed over the ragged edge of poverty and suggest, well, the economic tension's over. Right. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a plumber making whatever, $62,000 a year or something, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're freaking killing it and have no concerns about your job maybe going away at some point. You know, you can look at, there are, there's all sorts of other data out there. You know, the Wall Street Journal did that big study about countries most affected by trade with, with China and like 89 of the, the 100 counties went to Trump and the Republican primaries. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't seem that complicated for me for there to be multiple motivations here. But um, I, you, you also mentioned in your, in your piece that there's, there's some social scientists, scientific evidence that economic stress actually leads people to have nastier racial views. Can you, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, this is, um, you can think about this a couple ways. I mean, one is, as I've said, racism doesn't fall from the sky, right? I mean, at any moment, some proportion of people are racist and will be, uh, you know, acting on that in their political choices. And I think no one would deny that the proportion of people making uh, political choices this year because of feelings about people in other races is higher than it has previously. But, you know, so the first kind of social scientific question is, well, you don't stop there, right? So one thing you need to ask is, well, why is that the case? And so I think some of the things that, that you've brought up um, when are, are, you know, are very plausible answers to this question, right? When people are suffering greater economic stress, when they are not, their lives are not working out the way that they had hoped they would work out, or when they are, their real incomes are um, stagnating or falling, which we know is true of many, many people, even during this uh, recovery, then you are more likely to look to scapegoats. Um, and so this is, this is a... Uh, this has happened before. I mean, look, the 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 the, the rise of the Nazi Party in Germany. Um, I, I I just don't think it's a terribly like crazy analysis to note that like the party first gets popular after World War One when the economy in Germany is terrible. It then becomes less popular as the economy improves, and then it becomes wildly popular during the Great Depression. It, it doesn't have to be the only thing fueling that sort of thing, but it just seems like an awfully big coincidence to write off economic factors in in these types of movements before. Not to say that Trump is like a straight up fascist, uh, but but there, there's clearly some some strong man. Uh, element to to his persona. Yeah, I think so. I mean, because one of the things when people talk about um, racist sentiments among Trump voters, one of the things you hear people talk about is last racial last place aversion, right? So that means that uh, we were fine being, you know, to to caricature someone. It's you know, we were fine being uh, low income whites as long as there was a a lower status group that we could look down on. Right? Mm-hmm. And what what Frightens us now is that we feel like the the minorities are taking over, right? And so this is last place aversion. And so what I find, again, I guess kind of short sighted is when people say, "Look, the reason why Trump is popular isn't uh, economic stagnation; it's it's racial last place aversion." Because again, the question is just, well, why do people feel racial last place aversion? And last place in what race? I mean, when I say race, last place in what contest are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And the most likely explanation is the last place in the economic context. context. Uh, so people feel like they're falling behind. Yeah. And that is why, that's why one of the possible outcomes of 
economic stress, economic anxiety, is greater openness to racist appeals. And I think that um, this is... Now, that argument could be right or wrong. It could be uh, more or less persuasive. I think, as you say, it is absolutely one of the conventional narratives about Nazi Germany. Yeah. And, and it, so it could be... We could argue about that. But again, any argument based on polling data is completely misled. Well, to stick with just to stick with this, you know... Eventually, there's going to be a morning after. Okay, the election's going to end. Someone looking more and more like it's going to be Hillary Clinton will have to leave this country. If we're able to say at times that Donald Trump's rise is fueled by sort of this ra- racism, or it was it was paced by economic anxiety, it seems to me that these are at at least one, maybe two, dark problems to solve. Are we by ignoring by by putting everything into the racist basket and making it I think potentially easier for us to write these voters off? Are we mapping a bigger problem onto the the, the extant problem? I mean, because at some point reconciliation is going to have to happen. Yeah. So I know I I, I know what you're talking about. I actually have very I have mixed feelings about this, and I'm somewhat skeptical. So I'll say what I mean. I think that. So this this debate has gotten quite bitter. Well, quite bitter is actually the right word. Uh, Paul Krugman had a tweet. I think he he tweet he uh, cited Dylan Matthews and said it's racism, comma stupid, or something like that. Right. Um, essentially, so it's gotten quite bitter. Um, and I think it's gotten bitter. I mean, my kind of sociological analysis of the intelligentsia is that it's gotten bitter because people don't like admitting that they're wrong. So. The sides are just very deeply entrenched, and nobody wants to move an inch. Uh, that's what I think. Now, because of that, anyone, whenever someone writes an article about this on one side or the other, he or she has to emphasize two things. Uh, first of all, the, the economic anxiety deniers always say, but I, I also believe in programs to help poor people. And they do. I think all, all of these centralist people do believe mm-hmm. in programs to help poor people. And all of the economic anxiety believers always say, and I also think racism is really bad, and I also think racism is a major factor in the rise of Trump. Right. right? So, so everyone's kind of agreeing on that. But so in order to kind of keep this debate going, or to explain why you're putting so much energy into it, people have to say, well, the debate matters. And people say, well, the debate matters because, um, because if we... If we say it's economic anxiety, then we are essentially um, justifying racism or we're whitewashing racism or something like that. Sure. And people people say on the other side, people say that if we ignore economic anxiety, uh, we will we will you know not be not be focused on the right right solutions because um, we we have to improve economic opportunities for the working class. Um, but I think you know I think again. Both sides have stipulated to agreeing on the same set of solutions. Again, as you said, these are all centralized people. We all think that we need, uh, you know, a stronger social safety net. We need uh, ways to generate more jobs. We need more aggressive government fiscal policy to stimulate aggregation. So it should all work out. We should we should all be able to get along afterwards and hold hands and sing kumbaya and raise the minimum wage and all of that stuff. Uh, all right, James Kwok, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thank you.
And we're back. So this year in 2016, you know that you have a choice in this presidential election and not just between candidates, but between the, you know, the candidates you've heard of Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. You also have choices that could result in some spectacular things for America and indeed the world. And we're very fortunate. I'm here with Arthur Delaney. Hi. We're very fortunate to be speaking to a candidate that not a lot of people have talked to uh, and not a lot of people have heard from. So this is, you know, kind of a fun thing. We're uh, fun, exclusive. and We're very excited to have uh, the sweet meteor of death. Sweet meteor. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you very much for having me on your show. We're glad to have you. This is, I think, maybe the first time we've ever actually spoken to a celestial body, unless you count Jill Stein, who we've also talked to. But I just wanted to ask, just right off the bat, um, what, 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 what made you want to jump into the presidential race as a sweet meteor of death? That's, that's a good question. If you remember back to... December 2014, it was looking like the choice was going to be between Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, and that that seemed pretty terrible. I thought I needed to put my hat in the ring and offer a better alternative in the form of the end of human civilization. That's and that's an exciting platform. We haven't heard that of a lot of presidential candidates. Um, political scientists um, say that most candidates do try to keep their promises. Um, so, can you one hundred percent guarantee the total annihilation of humankind? That's a really tall order. Well, yes, I can. Um, it's it's actually just a matter of physics, basic math. Um, uh, and Newtonian physics is that, that, that you don't even need to get into relativity or anything really complex. But uh, yeah, I can guarantee that everyone's going to die. A sweet meteor of death. A lot of people have said that the sweet meteor of death is a is a metaphor for the despair that everyone feels and the hopelessness uh, as a result of this this election season. But I wonder if it's actually a good example of how much fun everyone's having. I think that's a, a fair statement. In fact, if you are familiar with the existentialist philosophers Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, they advocated, uh, they, they, they first taught that life is absurd and filled with absurdities and being aware of those absurdities and embracing them was one way to define meaning and get meaning out of a, a, an essentially absurd existence. And I think I think we're seeing that in this election. So you're really just a pure product of the sort of political system that we've devised for ourselves. In a way, you're essentially just about as American as it gets. That's pretty much true. What is the first 100 days of a sweet meteor of death administration like? That's a very good question. Glad we get to talk about some policy. So, um, day one, I'm impacting, and that will involve a large shock wave that will dismember anything within about a thousand mile radius. Impressive. Um, of course, if you're at the ground level, uh, you will be instantly vaporized. Um, 
about a 2,000 mile radius, the thermal energy from my impact will melt your skin off. Mm. Um, and it will set anything that's even remotely flammable on fire, including the atmosphere. Wow. I gotta say, I gotta hand it to you. This is not small bore incrementalist stuff. This is, this is a, a very, very big promise you're making. You're sure you're the, you're the sweet meteor to carry it out. I don't know if I have any personal characteristics that make me special, but I know I'm on a trajectory to impact Earth and I'm going to kill everyone. I got to say, sometimes the simple the simple ways of doing things are the best ways of doing things. Well, uh, the sweet meteor of death, you are um, on your way at some point in the future. Uh, I guess we should both look forward to meeting you and dread you, uh, you know, in, in some way, shape or form. Although, depending on your preference. Although I'll tell you, I'll, t- I'll, I'll be honest with you, sweet meter of death. I, I find your, your, your platform very compelling because it seems to me that if, uh, if I was to die in the impact of a sweet meteor of death, I wouldn't have to feel bad about all my unfulfilled goals, all the things that I meant to do in life and never achieved. You know, ultimately it would be no longer my fault that I got those things to fail to get those things done. That's really something nice that you're offering uh, everyone here on earth. That's correct. And the other big bonus is that no one else will be alive to mourn your death. Well, sweet meteor. Thank you for joining us today. Um, people out there, you can follow the sweet meteors trajectory by going to Twitter. It's at S M O D two zero one six. He's coming for you. And uh, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Sweet Meteor, thanks for being with us today. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. That was the Sweet Meteor of Death, ladies and gentlemen. You do have a real choice in this election, and we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by University of Connecticut history professor James Kwok, New York Times columnist Emma Roller, presidential candidate and pending extinction-level event, The Sweet Meteor of Death, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, S.V. Date, and Arthur Delaney. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.